This episode is brought to you by Chapman University. From climate science to patient safety, genomics to drug design, Chapman University data scientists are turning massive information sets into life-changing impact. The future is unfolding in Chapman's Schmidt College of Science and Technology. Here, masters and PhD students join in cutting-edge research as they prepare to take the next big leap in their professional journey. To learn more about the innovative tools and collaborative approach that distinguish the Chapman program in computational and data sciences, visit chapman.edu data science. That's chapman.edu slash data science. All right, let's do this. How are you data scientists and engineers? How are you business people? What's up nerds? Did you grasp that thing you were studying? This is Data Science at Home, the podcast about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and more good stuff. I am Francesco. I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes. So grab a cup of coffee and join me as we learn more about the topics we love most. This is going to be an episode that affects everyone. And by everyone, I mean everyone. If you use the internet, social media, search engines, microblogging platforms, if your bank is a digital bank, then this episode is for you. And frankly, you might not like the things that we're going to say today. Today, I'm with George Hosu. George is the writer of Cerebra Lab, a blog that occasionally talks about machine learning, programming, statistics, and technology. Hi, George. How are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm, uh, I'm doing quite fine. I'm joining you from uh, the beautiful, though now cloudy islands of uh, Tenerife. So, you know, oh, weather wow. is nice, but uh, Wi-Fi is bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lucky you, actually. I'm, I'm jealous now. <laughs> Well, Actually, I, think... I would, I would like to 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 exchange my my really bad and cold weather with uh, <laughs> with yours. Yeah, you need you need to hop onto the remote working bandwagon. I think you're in Brussels right now, right, or somewhere in exactly. Belgium. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's freaking cold over here. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not ideal. I was there this summer. It's uh, quite a nice <laughs> during the summer, but uh, I wouldn't want to be there during winters. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, George, do you mind introducing yourself to the listeners of uh, Data Science at Home podcast? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, essentially, um, you know, what very few people might know me by is that I have this blog called Cerebral Lab, where I cover quite a broad range of topics. Um, you know, my areas of expertise are, are mainly around programming um, and some would say around applied statistics, applied machine learning. Um, you know, if, if I am to get very fancy and um, overstate my credentials, maybe, you know, even how to apply the scientific method in general. Um, and then I also work as the lead ML engineer at a company called MindsDB that produces an open source library for automatic machine learning, which is essentially marketed in, in part, I guess, as a tool for, for data scientists and, and people that don't know machine learning um, mm-hmm. to be, actually be able to uh, build machine learning models and quickly prototype. So, so those are potentially the things that I, I do that are relevant to the conversation. Although um, the article that, that triggered this, I think, comes from a long background of working in, in advertising 
as you know on the data engineering side of things but with a lot of like advertising focused companies well that's uh, that's a good intro thanks and uh, in fact speaking of uh, you know probably the main reason why uh, we got to know each other <laughs> is uh, one of your uh, relatively old blogs that i read sometime uh, this year um in uh, and it's the one in particular the one about google uh, that really really caught my attention um so in that blog, uh, George was speaking about something that, as I said at the beginning of this episode, uh, affects everyone. Uh, everyone, I believe that uh, many of the people who are listening to this podcast use Google on a daily basis, multiple times per day. Uh, and together with Google, they use many other internet services like social media channels, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Netflix, probably Tinder, and, and probably all of them at once. <laughs> so the uh, the conversation today is going to be about how do these big companies actually conduct their business. Uh, and so, George, I'm uh, I'm gonna shut up for a while now and uh, and let you speak about how does Google conduct business. All right. Um, well, I should I should kind of caveat this um, with the fact that. I haven't worked for Google. Obviously, I'm a bit familiar with the Google business model. Uh, but, you know, my, my main model here just comes from working in, in advertising in general. And by just by some twist of fate, I ended up working there in, you know, basically the, the TV domain. So TV ads, uh, the audio streaming domain where you inject ads into radios and podcasts like this one, for example. Well, not this one in particular, but, you know, um, essentially all your material. I've worked obviously in, in web advertising and in sort of like industry specific advertising, which is kind of across the, the spectrum of mediums, but focused on an industry. And from that, as well as just from sort of general internet culture, it, it seems to me that um, a lot of companies, especially companies like um, Google, um, presumably companies like Facebook, presumably really any company that offers a free product, um, work based on a few models that they usually combine. So, so one of them is essentially just displaying ads and, and getting people to, um, to look at them or to click on them or to engage in some action further down the, the selling pipeline. Um, one of them is uh, linking uh, their user profiles with the user profiles of other networks and actually providing more information about the user uh, to a different website or to an aggregator of data. Um, so essentially selling user information, you, you could say, um, maybe has a, a bit of a bad ring to it, but it, it might boil down to that. Um, and uh, the, well, I guess let's, let's, uh, let's stick to that uh, ontology because I think that's simpler. So essentially, you know, it boils down to um, selling user information and targeting users with ads. And then within the, the targeting users with ad space, obviously that user information is also valuable because under certain models, so if you're trying, for example, to make people to, to click an ad, or even more so if um, they have to click a purchase link after clicking your ad or you know some sort of action, well, it, it pays to know stuff about the user because then you'll know um, what kind of ads to display to them, right? So I think that's that's a core business model of a lot of these platforms. So you are saying that essentially they monetize the the users' activities, in fact, and the, the users' habits on their platforms. 
which means that their platforms become essentially vehicles to collect data. Uh, yes, essentially. Well, you know, I think there's there's exceptions to data collection because sometimes the user activity in itself um, implies enough about the kind of ads to show. So, for example, if I you know if I search something on Google like find me a plumber uh, in Michigan or you know plumbers in Michigan or however people would type that, well, you know. Google already knows or, or should know that, okay, they should match me with an advert about a plumber working in Michigan. So personal data doesn't, doesn't really uh, get into that, right? Um, but if I Google something like, let's say, um, online therapist, and Google knows from my search history that I've, been, um, that I've been searching about, I don't know, bipolar disorder on WebMD, then you know, they might recommend me an ad for an online therapist that specializes in bipolar disorder. So in you know in, in some cases I you know I think the user data really matters. In other cases, it's really just the data of the request itself that, that matters. Um, you know, however they weigh this internally, something I have no access to. Well, and there is one very recent example how all this has become quite uh, evident, at least to the big public, uh, which is the um, the very recent change of terms of WhatsApp, right? Uh, where they are actually claiming that uh, they are going to uh, integrate the data uh, from you know uh, the public using WhatsApp to all the other uh, companies in the family of uh, of uh, the Facebook family, in fact, Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp, right? Yeah, and I think you know the one that's that's kind of the the point where where people might get a bit a bit iffy um, with in regards to privacy, right? Because um, I might not really care um, if, let's say, Google has a history of my search queries, um, but I might care if someone is actually trying to extract information um, from various, uh, you know, various chats, chat programs that I'm using. Um, because even if you try to extract sort of like a, an embedding from that, right, you're not obviously you're not taking that wholesale. Uh, you might still stumble upon information that that. Uh, some people may may think as, as sensitive. You know, mind you, I, I wouldn't use WhatsApp to communicate any sort of like sensitive information ever. Um, but you know, I, I guess a lot of people might. For sure, I mean that's uh, that there are more than a billion actually that are uh, kind of uh, doing that on a regular basis without paying too much attention to confidentiality and privacy and and stuff like that. Um, George, why do you think people accept this? You know, I I, I know that. Uh, Many, I'm an optimist, <laughs> so I know that people, I believe that people know that, uh, as a matter of fact, they are the product, but they accept it. Uh, why do you think that's the case? So, um, for one, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure everyone um, disagrees with being the product, quote-unquote, these companies sell, right? Um, in that, I guess some people might actually enjoy better targeted ads, right? Now, to, to me, just as a matter of my personality, this always ring very hollow, right? Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person to use an ad block everywhere. Um, but, for example, there's, you know, dozens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in, in the US um, that are watching TV and, and receiving ads on that. And as far as my experience, just from the advertising side, um, TV is a much, much more ad heavy platform um, than 
than sort of you know anything on the internet basically right um so i haven't watched tv in like 20 years but as far as i remember the ratio was something like um one ad to to five uh you know five so one minute of ad to five minutes of contents let's say and based I, I think you know it depended a lot on the channel um but that that seemed to ring true as far as i i saw just in the ads that we were monitoring the delivery of so um you know it's it's beyond me why, why people watch that when there are plenty of alternatives on the internet and i guess some of it might be people stuck in in their ways but i think there is there's some part of us that actually enjoys advertisement at least for some people and i think some people might actually prefer those targeted ads so I think that's that could be an explanation um, that's that's worth taking into consideration that some people don't mind. I'm I'm not sure if that appeals to you. Well, the thing is that I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm one of those cases like yourself that uh, doesn't really watch TV, and I, I in fact I never had a TV, <laughs> um, but I I bought one just to connect Netflix. <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, but uh, yeah, I think that it's a. I've seen in the last 20 years, uh, the habits of people changing, uh, kind of getting used to uh, being bumped by longer and longer advertisement campaign. That was, you know, as you said, uh, one minute every five, probably that was true uh, 10, 15 years ago. I think that now it's much more, if you consider only on YouTube, any video of even three minutes, uh, you're gonna get bumped at least a couple of times <laughs> uh, on average. What I want to say is that the rate of and the number of um, uh, seconds uh, of advertisement that we've received today is way higher, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it, so it, it might be. And, and, you know, one of the funny things is despite me working in, well, as a data engineer, mostly in, in advertising, I, I don't really know how prevalent ads are because I'm, I'm fairly... I would say good, quote unquote, at, at ad blocking everything in one way or another. The one thing I recommend to everyone is you block origin. Um, but there's there's a few additional things you can do past that. So I was actually unaware they played multiple ads during YouTube videos, um, believe it or not. I, I, I will trust you that they do, but like I never see ads on my YouTube videos just because you block has a way of, of dealing with that on Firefox. So um, that, but, but, um, you know, I, I do agree that even in our position where we dislike ads, it's it's kind of hard to get rid of them. And, and you know, most ways of doing so are, are ways that are harming the company, right? So, um, well, YouTube might benefit from us watching, if, even if we have uBlock Origin, just from a marketing perspective, right? Because otherwise we might switch to, you know, um, a fancy platform that that uses blockchain-based storage to to deliver videos instead of YouTube. Hmm. Um, but you know, as long as we are able to block ads, uh, and presumably this is in part YouTube's intention that you know, if you go to some length, you should be able to block ads. Um, we'll keep using YouTube, and and YouTube gets this sort of like monopoly effect up until it's it's very hard to to switch away from YouTube, right? Um, and on the other hand, um, if we want to, to go sort of the ethical route and actually pay these platforms, for some of them, there's, there's no option to do that. Actually, YouTube, I guess, is, is a counterexample because there is. And, and nowadays, I believe I, I believe I actually have on my phone, though I keep forgetting to use it, um, there is like YouTube Premium, which essentially is YouTube without ads, right? Like it's, you know, you pay a, a flat fee to YouTube and, you know, you get YouTube without ads and presumably a bunch of other stuff. 
but there isn't such a thing for Google, for example. Yeah, exactly. So I want to connect exactly to this last statement because that was uh, an analysis, if I if I may use that word, uh, that you used in your blog. Uh, what if Google charged for providing the services, the search engine and all the other Google services? Uh, can you summarize that part? It was really cool. Yeah, so... so Okay, so uh, this is, again, I don't work for Google. This is uh, back, of, back of the blanket sort of map, right? But uh, my analysis was something like, okay, you've got Alphabet Inc. And in 2019, that got like 130 billion in revenue, right? And uh, I believe out of that, something like around 100 billion. So the analysis that I, that I sort of did, um, which isn't any thorough analysis, right? So I only have access to public data, I didn't look at it very thoroughly, I just did some, you know, basic math in like 30 seconds to figure this out, was that essentially out of um, Google, well, Alphabet Inc's total revenue, which is like 160 billion, um, it seems that uh, Google Ads uh, is making 134 billion of that, right? So most of the revenue of Google seems to come from from ads, or at least from, from Google Ads, which um, should include a bunch of, you know, basically advertising services. I'm not exactly sure internally how they move um, various services through various umbrellas, right? So it it may be that um, Google Ads handles everything, or maybe they have a few other subsidiaries or parallel companies. But in principle, I think Google Ads is the one probably responsible for, for most of the behavior, including any sort of like data selling that Google does. And again, I, I, don't, necessarily, I don't actually even know how much data Google sells to other platforms. Um, because Google is big enough that data selling for them might actually be bad in certain situations or in a lot of them, right? right? They might just want to hoard all the data and, and just deliver ads. But at any rate, you know, if, if we um, were to say that we dislike advertising, then essentially we'd have to figure out a way to use um, Google and still, or really to use all the Google services because it's not only Google. Um, and still get that that 134 billion revenue number to Google, right? And if you assume that basically everyone that uses the internet uses Google, uh, that's actually not such a staggering cost, right? So you have like, um, you know, I think the, the numbers I got were, let's see, like 4.6 billion people um, use the internet. So let's assume they all use Google. That's just like $2.3 a month um, for everyone on the internet to essentially fulfill Google's revenue stream, right? Um, and again, that presumably wouldn't just give you access to um, Google search engine ad-free, that would give you access to everything Google ad-free, at least if the, the goal of, of Google was to keep revenue constant, right? Right. Um, but then you might say that, okay, $2.3 a month sounds like nothing to us, right? We occasionally probably spend more than that on like a shitty coffee. Uh, but, you know, definitely in some countries, um, that can be a considerable amount, or even just for, for kids that don't have an allowance or a very high allowance, that can be a considerable amount. Um, but still, if, you know, if you, again, do the basic math and say, okay, let's just say that just, you know, the top 20% richest people in the world or the top 10% richest people in the world pay for this, right? And let's assume all of those are basically Google users, right? Um, we, are, we are still left with not a lot, right? So, you know, depending, I, I think the number I came up with, you know, if you have like top 20% richest people on earth, uh, that's something like $6 per month per person, or, you know, 
top 10%, okay, that's $12 per month per person. Um, you know, top 1%, if, if only the top 1% would be to pay for Google, that's like 120. But essentially, considering how many Google services we use and how important Google and, and Google Scholar are to, for finding any sort of information, it, it wouldn't be a huge amount that we'd actually um, have to pay um, for, uh, for Google to be free of ads, right? And I, I think the interesting thing here is, you know, uh, the, the fact that if you probably if you asked a lot of individuals, you know, would you want Google to be free of ads? A lot of them would agree on that. Um, yet it's, it's actually very hard to just bite the bullet and use a paid service. Um, and I think maybe it's, you know, essentially you've got like several coordination problems to solve, right? Like for one, as Google, um, you have to actually admit to your investors that, okay, you can no longer have like infinite growth based on ads where, you know, the revenue cap is, is fuzzy, right? You actually have to have like subscription-based uh, mm -hmm. revenue, which is, is, has, you know, made more steady, but has like a, um, a more fixed a cap. Sure. Yeah. And, and then I guess the, the other issue becomes that if you want to do this in a fair way and you want to actually say to people that pay you like, Hey, we, we are no longer going to use your data for anything. Well, you might actually lose valuable context for advertising to other people, right? So, because your data might also be useful for advertising to people like you, um, and you're, you're going to lose that data and, you know, at most, even if you keep using my search data, right, you lose the data about how I interact with ads. So, you know, for every subscriber, the quality of ads for the other people in from Google's perspective, the amount of money they make from ads presumably drops. And then also you get into this problem where one of the things that happens if you um, drop ads as Google is, well, you can, um, you know, for lack of, of a, a prettier way to say it, you can fire all the people working on advertising, right? Or at least you can move them to other departments and then you, you don't have to hire new people. So that saves on operating costs. Um, but if you want to move to the subscription model gradually, well, um, that's a problem because you have to still keep all of the department hired. Actually, it, it might be even more problematic because not only do you have to keep the, the department staffed, but people will will sort of smell what's coming and might decide to, to leave en masse um, before you can actually switch business model. So there's there's a lot of hard uh, coordination problems that have to happen there. And, you know, obviously another way to do it is you can just say as Google, from tomorrow, um, everyone has to buy a subscription, right? Or you can announce people like one month in advance. Um, but then the problem is that people will just say, you know, well, I. I prefer ads uh, to buying a subscription or might just sort of feel at this point like entitled uh, to Google services. Um, so they you know, might just switch to a different search engine. And again, Google is like an example here. You can use Facebook, uh, you can use Reddit, you can use YouTube, uh, you can use, I don't know, I think people don't use MySpace, Instagram maybe. I'm, I'm not super versed in, in like social media website so um yeah <laughs> no but, but it's true i mean this can be generalized pretty nicely to all the let's say free or non-paid platforms out there 
for sure. But George, are there alternatives? Because uh, I understand what you say, like uh, the transition might be very problematic uh, in practical terms for a company like Google, but what are the alternatives from the point of view of the of the end user? Uh, and by alternative, I mean alternative in finding uh, different solutions, uh, different platforms, different technologies, uh, or just changing habits. I think that alternatives exist plenty. The one issue there, which is is quite um, well known, you know, is the the fact that you need a network effect to actually get most platforms to work. So to get something like Facebook or Reddit off the ground, you need a lot of users. And uh, you, you run into a similar consensus or synchronization problem that you do with uh, you know, trying to switch everyone using Google to a paid subscription. It's, it's actually very difficult uh, to convince everyone using Reddit to switch instantly, right? Even though a lot of people using Reddit or using Facebook might disagree with, with some policy from Reddit or from Facebook. Um, because, you know, just even spreading the word takes time. And then um, a lot of people, you know, why they might care in principle about privacy or it might be something they, you know, they vaguely know is being, um, you know, is important to them. Um, they might not care enough, honestly, to just create a, a new account on some other website, right? Um, right. I think there is, um, well, there's a, there's a blog that talks about this way more. Let's make a pause here so I can actually reference this, if you don't mind. Hey folks, if building software is your passion, you'll love ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast. It's a podcast for techies by techies. Their team of experienced technologists take a deep dive into a tech topic that's piqued their interest. It could be how machine learning is being used in astrophysics or maybe how to succeed at continuous delivery. They're always coming across fascinating ways technology is advancing and love to share what they learn. Whatever the topic, the discussions are always lively, informative, and opinionated. The team of co-hosts are experienced technologists from across ThoughtWorks and include ThoughtWorks CTO Dr. Rebecca Parsons and renowned writer and speaker Neil Ford. Each episode, the podcast features a guest or two to talk about their particular passion and areas of expertise. Past guests have included eminent technologists like Martin Fowler, Mark Richards, Dana Boyd, and many others. If you like this show, I think you should give ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast a try. To find out more, just search for ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And of course, make sure you subscribe. Okay, so going back to what I was saying, if, if you actually want to know a bit more about this, this subject of network effects, I would uh, recommend a, a blog called Remains of the Day, which is written by, by a VC that very much works in this sort of I wouldn't want to say social media space, but in, in basically the space of applications that require a, a network effect. And he wrote basically a, a, a small book um, um, in, a, in a blog post entitled Status as a Service, right? Which essentially um, describes most social media platforms as this sort of entity that's uh, split between giving people what, what seems to them like social status and actually giving people utility and, and how that um, translates into the way apps scale and it actually intersects quite well with how um, collecting user data plays into this and how that can help. Uh, we'll report the, the link in the show notes of this episode and definitely the coordinate of the book at datasciencesatom.com. 
I think one important thing to keep in mind with, with being the product is that, you know, right now, it, it's a fairly uh, small issue in that you are the product in that uh, you demand something for free. You're not putting in any sort of work to, to support the technology. And to some extent, you know, to understand the technology, because a lot of the, the platforms that we use, we use because we just lack, you know, the... Um, the time or the willpower or the know-how to use uh, free alternative versions of those platforms. So, so you being the product really is sort of like offloading um, some cost to you, be that a monetary cost or the cost of having to learn something onto some company and accepting a, just, you know, a tiny bit of behavior modification for offloading that cost, right? So being shown ads and being uh, induced to hopefully act like like those ads want you to to act right, and and if you think of it in the advertising space, that's that's very you know that's very minor at the end of the day. It's what preferences for for genes you have, um, but if you think of these companies as being sort of the business models of the future, and and considering that a lot of these companies are you know past a trillion dollar in market cap, they might well be well two of them are I guess, but a lot of them will soon be getting there. Um, you know, then it, it becomes a bit scarier because the way to think about this is something like, you know, who's delivering the ads? Well, a series of algorithms that are optimizing for how to, you know, best move your preferences towards buying ads, right? So essentially what's, what's happening is you have this feedback loop where people are trading in a bit of comfort over... Uh, the ability for some algorithm to, you know, slightly indoctrinate them, to, to slightly alter their preferences, right? So um, people are, are opting to pay less and for, you know, in exchange for that, their preferences, you know, whatever they, they thought before they interacted with your product will matter just a bit less, right? Because you'll, you'll try to essentially change their preference. Right. So you're saying that algorithms are basically changing slowly and slightly our habits on a, on a daily basis, kind yeah, of. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, I, I don't think that this, like, Google in itself doing this leads to a dystopia. Like, ads are ads. Right. But but in a broader sense, you know, especially if you, if you buy into the hypothesis that a lot of problems will soon become much easier to solve with a computer than with a human brain, and you definitely don't have to buy into, like, strong AI, quote-unquote, here. I'm not a fan of that concept. But even if you just buy into like a lot of specialized systems being um, being used for decision making in the future, really by by sort of like being the product, you're essentially saying that you you prefer a world in which uh, you have to work less, but your preferences uh, don't really matter. And and in a world where you know algorithms are essentially taking a lot of important decision, human preferences not mattering is potentially very dangerous, right? Because algorithms don't have preferences, right? So it's not like a Skynet-type scenario. But, but algorithms do optimize for things. And if the things that they optimize for are not human preferences, the things that they will optimize for are going to be, you know, potentially very dangerous. They might be, you know, corporate profits or, or something that's on the face of it harmless, but when it discounts... Unethical you, decisions. Yeah, yeah when, when it discounts human preferences, it automatically becomes sort of like against humans in most cases, or at least it, it becomes a random agent rather than an, an agent acting for a good. Mm. So I, I think that's, you know, an important framing of 
why it might be important not to want to be the product. It is indeed, and uh, definitely worth speaking about this. George, do you think what do you think about blockchain technology and uh, the concept of decentralizing the services that we usually deal with today? Yeah, so the the thing with with blockchain technology um, is that it's unclear to me exactly. Um, well, it's clear to me how you could use it to build something that's in principle better. Because with, with a lot of services, uh, even something like like Google, right? Um, with the kind of computers we have nowadays, it would be fairly easy to distribute all of that processing, right? And, and even more so with, with something like YouTube, right? Like the oldest blockchain model before you had any sort of like proof of work blockchain models was one that, that was designed for distributed storage, right? Where essentially you, uh, you store the hash of the files on, well, you store kind of a, I believe, a, well, okay, I won't go into the details, but essentially, it's like a fingerprint of the of whatever content you're gonna share, yeah. and you keep the you keep the actual content locally in your machine, yeah. and you have, and, uh, and you provide. Yeah, and you have four or five or six or ten people. You can you know, and and then you you can get into more sophisticated things, or you could actually um, pay people or pay the blockchain, quote unquote, in terms of storage to have like right. more people store your content so that it's it's more redundant. Um, and, and, you know, that's somewhat problematic, but actually not quite as problematic as um, most scriptors out there, as in, for various reasons, it's both less profitable and uh, harder to actually do a, an, an attack on that where you try to gain like 50% of the consensus, right? So alternatives there definitely exist. But I guess the, the, you know, the core of the issue, again, is that you're kind of trying to solve a synchronization problem. And with someone like, like Google, for example, if they wanted to do this, at least they are in a situation where they have like a few trillion dollars that they could throw at this, right? Um, but if you wanted to, to start sort of a, a blockchain solution from the ground up, let's say, um, and, and distribute content that way, well, it could work in principle, but there's no extra money there to actually throw at marketing, right? So it, it has to spread purely through through word of mouth um, for it to be successful, right? Right. Um, not, not to mention the fact that, you know, as, as can be seen with, you know, with Bitcoin and what happened there, which, you know, I guess there's still a lot of controversy around Lightning Networks and all of that stuff. But essentially, if you scale, um, you know, outside of the realm where you thought it, it, would, it was possible, um, stuff actually starts breaking. And something like Bitcoin, which was designed for something like, okay, let's have uh, decentralized, transactions that are very fast moves into, you know, essentially working just like any other currency in that you essentially have to have uh, crypto exchanges do transactions for you because it's too expensive and too slow to do any transaction on your own. Um, and, you know, I mean, the Bitcoin of today is essentially a centralized currency, right? Like mimicking to be a crypto, but you have like five exchanges, which could probably, which probably control most of the volume right now. So, you know, that's, you know, basically the two problems there are it would be slow to pick up speed, even if it did. And then, you know, it's very hard to design for that scale and things might happen that you don't expect once you once you reach that sort of scale. And it might well be that everything backfires and whatever you have becomes more or less, you know, worthless, at least, you know, as far as the original purpose. Um, 
and then you know you you've just spent like 20 years trying to convince people to switch to this new model <laughs> now it's it's suddenly gotten just as corrupt as the old model in some way so you know you you've just wasted time you've added technical complexity and you don't get anything <laughs> so i guess that's that that's the problem there which is not to say that you know i i think that in principle yes distributed solutions are the way to go um but i think we're still waiting for one to actually succeed I agree with you. There is a technological barrier for sure. Uh, as an engineer, uh, when you have a centralized service, uh, it's always uh, you know most you know easiest to easier to to develop, easier to design, and also more um, performant than a com- completely decentralized and distributed system. Um, and also, I see um, the other difficulties, other barriers. For example, from the user's point of view. Uh, I don't know, managing private keys, changing software at the end, because all the things that we are used today uh, might be gone the day after we we switch to a completely new substrate of the internet. Uh, So I see the the same barriers as you uh, here. So my question to you, quite provocative, are we doomed to uh, stay products? Um, I I would say the answer is probably not, but it's probably also no for like bad reasons. So as I mentioned before, I think it's actually quite easy to avoid ads if you try. And that most people simply don't try or just don't have the the technical know-how because I guess I could say that my setup for blocking ads everywhere is, is fairly easy at the same time it's been kind of hard to explain to people. And those people weren't like my grandmother. They were technically apt friends that use computers, right? And, and you know, a lot of people might just not care for it. Um, so I, I think there's this weird state in which actually there's, there's some interest uh, from these companies um, to keep everything um, in such a way that you can actually dodge ads if you kind of try. The same way that, you know, companies might prefer that, that people in third world countries can... Uh, can pirate the movies that they can't pay for, even you know once they're released to DVD, um, because that way they they get some market coverage, um, and you know they wouldn't have sold movies for for any significant price there anyway. Uh, only that you know with with social media apps or with Google with search engines that are, are based on you know that that um, depend on uh, the amount of user data they get. Uh, there's even more of an emphasis on trying to keep a lot of people on your platform. So I think that's one possibility. Um, I think the other possibility could be that you know someone that's um, in a completely different game actually comes in and removes advertising, right? So uh, that's something that's in part happening with Mozilla, where um, you know the, one of the reasons why Google is essentially seems to be throwing a lot of weight at Mozilla right now. Um, and you know I, I won't go into any accusations, but essentially. <laughs> I, I want to inform you that we don't have legal protection on this show, so <laughs> pay attention to what you're saying. So I, I think um, one of the reasons that we, we might see a lot of interesting press around uh, Mozilla in the future, and there, there's been some already, and a lot of divergence between Chromium and Chrome and, and Mozilla, is, is that Mozilla and its Firefox browser seems to actually be um, earing on, on the side of trying to... Uh, actually build in some of the ad blocking features right off the bat, right? And then Chromium seems to be earing on the side of, of trying to remove the possibility of ad blocking or at least make it much, much harder. Um, and then you have other companies like, so 
you know, Mozilla is an, as being an example of an uninterested party in that it's a browser vendor. It doesn't make money from, from ads and it's not invested in the system. And then you have other companies like Apple, which, you know, I guess recently announced they're essentially uh, disabling or at least allowing opt-out out of any sort of like user tracking on their platforms for applications to deliver targeted ads. Um, and again, the, the thing with Apple is that it's already got um, well, not a monopoly, but it's got a very strong hold on the market. Right. It makes no money from ads directly. And it might be that, that you know, implementing these sort of like privacy measure hurts their marketplace a bit. Um, but really, you know, they are they're essentially powerful enough that they can think about the long game and they can say, well, you know, if Apple becomes known as like the platform with no ads, um, that's you know definitely an advantage that it could it could you know hang over let's say um, Linux or definitely Windows. So I think I think there's there's that possibility of sort of like third party players um, intervening and not third party let's say just uh, players in different industries intervening hmm. to stop everything right. Um, and then there's also the hope of actually within industry interfering right. So at the end of the day. Um, the the you know the most powerful and and most skilled enemy of most of these companies are their rivals, right? And you can get into this degenerative game, whereas you know you as as the winner of of the game as the monopoly uh, are displaying more and more ads, more aggressively collecting more data. But then at some point, people can can swoop in and they can actually offer whatever you're offering, but ad free. Um, so that's also a way to it's go. like who offers, you know, who's the who has the better offer in, in this case, minimizing the number of advertisement that you do, providing the same services and, and, and kind of moving that bar uh, towards, you know, less and less advertising. That's for sure. Um, I mean, that's I think the, the game is going to we, we're going to see playing um, in the near future. And then there is another game that we want to see. Well, at least in Europe, we are already seeing. Uh, and hearing quite loudly, which is regulators. Um, we have GDPR. Europe is quite a pioneer in that. Uh, but I think the US is already uh, preparing to follow, um, you know, in the, this data, in, in this abuse of data that we have been, uh, we have been observing so far. Um, this has to stop. And that's what, that was the, the voice of Europe and the European Union, in fact, um, so any any conclusion about regulation? How can they or will they uh, change the game if they will change the game? One thing I will, I will say about regulations, just from my experience in implementing GDPR-related changes to software, um, which granted I was only doing on sort of like the last stretch of, of working on this, is that I'm not sure how effective they will be. Um, because at the end of the day, um, the only thing that regulations say right now is that users have to like be able to accept um, the fact that you know their data will be gathered, which a lot of companies were, were kind of putting disclaimers about in their terms of service before anyway. And then the other thing they do is they allow the user the power to delete the you know the data on a given platform at any time. Um, but it's kind of hard to regulate how hard that is and. You know, again, we're talking about people that if they that you know if they saw Google cost like five dollars a month, um, the you know the next day they would switch to a different search engine. They wouldn't pay five dollars and be happy they're no longer seeing ads. So, um, 
what's you know will they actually go through like a 30 seconds process to remove all of their um you know ad relevant history from google or from facebook right uh potentially not right so in in that sense i think something like like gdpr i'm not sure how much that's that's helping and then you can obviously you obviously can have stronger regulations um but at, at some point that just gets into you know the game of um, big companies lobbying governments so that they are allowed to have loopholes in the regulations, and you know, I, you know, it really gets into a political debate of like, you know, can governments impose fine-grained regulations or not? But I guess that's of always course. a risk there. And and we are seeing that already, I must say. All right, George, this will this was really cool, very interesting. I hope that the uh, the public of this show enjoyed as much as I did. Unfortunately, we are at the end of this episode, George. It was very nice to have you here. Do you have any contact to share uh, with the community of uh, Data Science on Podcast? Um, I guess if if people want to um, contact me, they should just go to my blog, which is cerebralab.com. And you will see my, my contact information there if you want to, to email me or if, uh, to ping me on Twitter or to check out my work on GitHub or, or anything else. So, yeah, I'd recommend people just go there. That's great. And uh, they will definitely go there because we will report your link in the show notes of this episode on uh, the usual and official website, datascienceathome.com. Thank you very much, George. See you soon. Thank you. It was, it was my pleasure. Looking forward to more of your episodes. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.